Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. We've got a real treat today. Now I do love the history of shipwrecks and I especially love the clever use of archaeology to recover artefacts and then I think most of all I love the clever historical research that helps us understand objects and items that we are lucky enough to have recovered from the deep. And that's exactly what we're talking about today with the excellent Dr Janet Dickinson. Janet is Senior Associate Tutor in History at Oxford University's Department for Continuing Education. And she is also Senior Faculty Advisor and Lecturer for New York University in London. Her research focuses on the nobility and the court in early modern England and Europe, and she has published widely on these subjects. Most recently, she formed part of an Anglo-Dutch project, Maritime Archaeology Meets Cultural History, focusing on the extraordinary objects retrieved from a 17th century shipwreck, in particular a set of drowned books. What do you say? Drowned books? Well, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about today. Janet is a member of the steering committee for Lord Burley 500. That's a project celebrating the 500th anniversary of William Cecil's birth. Uh, Cecil, of course, being Elizabeth I's most trusted advisor. Uh, Janet tweets as William Cecil at Lord Burley 500 and also as herself at Tudor Nobility. And I would urge you to follow her on social media. Today we are talking about these wonderful drowned books. Well, what what is a drowned book? In August 2014, a group of amateur divers revisited a ship they had known about since 2009, one of a number of shipwrecks that they regularly explored. But this time they found that shifting tides had exposed much more of the wreck than had previously been seen, including a number of wooden luggage chests discovered near the main mast. Over the course of two days, they found around a thousand items brought from the wreck, comprising textiles, women's clothing, furnishing items and objects related to life on board ship, many in a remarkable state of preservation. The divers also retrieved a large number of leather book covers, the remains of books packed into one or two of the luggage chests. Many of these were in a remarkable state of preservation. 
which have provided scholars with a glimpse into the world of trade and travel in the mid 17th century. Now, if you're listening to this, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast on Instagram. Check us out on Twitter, where you will find images of these astonishing books. I'll also make sure. That they are on Facebook and the Society for Nautical Research's website at snr.org.uk. By paying close attention to the manufacture and design of these beautiful books, we're able to gain significant insights both into the collection and the identity of its possible owner, as well as understanding better the international connections of books and their readers at this date. Now, dendrochronological analysis of the wrecked timber indicates that the wood used for the ship was cut in the winter of 1640-1. to Taking into account the minimal times for the transport and drying of timber, as well as the building of the ship, it can't possibly have been at sea before 1643. We know from her cargo of palm wood that the ship was involved in trade with the Mediterranean, but... That's enough for me whetting your appetite like the cover of a drowned 17th century book. And here is Janet Dickinson to tell you more. Hi, Janet. Thanks for talking to me today. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me about this wreck. It's mysterious, I think is the best word. Um, the, uh, we know quite a lot about it now, but we there are a lot of things that we'd like to know that we can't know without further underwater archaeology being done. So at the moment what we know is that there's this um, sort of merchant ship uh, at the bottom of what they call the, the Roads of Tessel or the Reed Van Tessel. Uh, there's about 500 to 1,000 shipwrecks down there, so it's wow. one amongst many. Um, and it's a wreck that was covered over with a layer of silt. And then uh, in around, I think, 2009, a local amateur diving team sort of came across the wreck and then monitored, monitored it thereafter. Um, and they basically have been, you know, kind of intrigued by the kind of uncovering of this wreck as the silt levels kind of change and move in the area. So what they had by 2014, I think it was, um, was a, a wreck that was increasingly being sort of uncovered. And it seems to be sitting kind of, as it were, you know, sort of straight down on the seabed so it might be a slight angle but it really just seems to be kind of sitting there um, and the the upper deck has uh, sort of got uncovered over time and they uh, realized that they could see some kind of objects uh, which appeared to be some sort of chests or uh, luggage or equipment of some kind around about the air of the main mast uh, and what they did was uh, they they kind of um it's difficult to know exactly what was going on because for them down there on the bottom of the sea of course it's really silty the light is poor uh, you know they're trying to see and they can't see terribly well but basically they found that there were a number of items coming loose they say uh, and they kind of grabbed them and brought them up to the surface mm -hmm. so what you got then was a whole bunch of quite extraordinary items so and a whole you, bunch. Give us, give us some figures. I mean, I, I know there by, by a whole yeah. bunch. There's a lot, aren't there? <laughs> there's nearly a thousand. I think ultimately, wow. kind of individual objects. Some are fragments. You know, so they're not all fully intact. But there's a lot of stuff. Um, and, and considering the amount yeah. of wrecks that are there, um, yeah. it's quite remarkable that they chose this one to look at, and it was this one that that has so much surviving material. It's very fortuitous, wasn't it? It it does seem kind of it's kind of romantic i think you know in a way i'm I'm sure that they were looking at other wrecks as well i think it's just this one seems to have been come sort of becoming uncovered but 
but what they brought up was extraordinary. I mean, the um, the people in the museum there, the people that first saw these items, said it was like the Tutankhamun of the underwater world, uh, <laughs> particularly because they had these intact textiles. So they had this 17th century woman's silk dress that they kind of washed off on the, the dock side um, and then thought, OK, what do we do with this? You know, it's not every day that you have a kind of elite woman's silk dress from the 17th century in your hands. So, so, they so, what's it, the, yeah. the, there's these anaerobic <laughs> conditions, right? Yeah. So uh, I suppose the silt or the mud stops the uh, organisms in the sea from eating all of the organic material. Is that what's happened? Is that why, why it's, That's it. it's survived? Yeah. Yeah, such, it, such great detail, yeah. Precisely, yeah. And then, of course, as soon as you bring it out into the air, then the process of disintegration begins. So okay. some of the textiles, some of the other objects brought up, you know, almost immediately started to fall apart, um, from, from what I'm told. Uh, so, you know, there was a bit of an urgency there. So they did get in touch with the right people. They went to the local museum. It's called Cap Skill. It's a shipwreck museum on Tessel. So they're, yeah. they're used to, uh, to seeing extraordinary and, and strange things being washed up or brought up. Um, but they got in touch with experts at the Rijksmuseum and at the University of Amsterdam and, you know, got everything, as it were, you know, in a condition where they could start conserving it. Um, and the the things that I'm interested in, the book covers, these leather book covers, uh, they had the divers told me about how they sort of pulled them out. They didn't know what they were. And as they brought them up to the surface, they saw this these sort of pulpy substance washing away in the water, which we think was the, the paper the pages wow. of the books inside so you know it, it in a way it's a shame you know that uh, they couldn't do a sort of proper underwater excavation but at the same time you know these items were coming loose they would have been washed away they would have been lost so you know it's one of those kind of moments you know where I'm, I'm glad we have what we have but there's also that sense that we could have perhaps had more or, or indeed that there's more down there. Yeah. Um, and so what you've got is a is a is an amazing collection of 17th century. Let's put a date on this wreck as well. 1640 yeah. something. Yeah? Um, yeah. So um, mid mid 17th century book bindings, which are amazing. And yes. yeah, for people out there listening and who are thinking about the history of books, you might uh, assume that all historians are interested in are what's inside a book. But that would be a mistake um, <laughs> because book bindings are absolutely fascinating. They tell us um, an enormous amount about society at the time. They're an art form in their own right. Um, what is it about book bindings that you, in, you enjoy so much? Well, actually, I found during, during the research for this project, um, I found that a lot of people hadn't really thought about kind of ordinary book bindings. If I can put it that way, so that you know, the some of these are you know high quality, quite expensive, but some of them are really quite old. Most of them are sixteenth century bindings. So wow, you've okay. got something that went into the sea when it was a hundred years old in the first place. Um, they have terrible damage to them. They have all these little holes and kind of tears and, and little kind of worm trails through them, which when I first saw them as a, you know, a, not, not, a, not a maritime archaeology expert, I assumed was, was damage done underwater, but apparently not. It, it actually is woodworm damage from when the books were being used above ground. So when they went into the wreck, they were they were in quite a bad state, some of them. And actually, that's the thing that excites me about them is that they're they're not a set of, you know, really fancy, expensive books on the shelf of a library. These are books which belong to someone who kept them for a long time, who maybe acquired them secondhand, who used them. You know, they, they show signs of wear. My favourite one is the one that has uh, a little doodle 
needle kind of scraped into it probably by a child you know it's a lovely you know expensive looking leather book cover but someone's child or someone has got bored and they've just doodled a little bird into the into the leather cover and i look at that and i think you know you know that that that's not the sort of thing you often see in a library you know it's not the sort of thing when you go into the bodley and you know you see a book like that this is something that's been used abused you know it it meant something in in a kind of a human sense uh, so yeah. you know it was it was exciting when i first saw well, there's it, a whole there's a whole a branch of scholarship around marginalia and around mm. doodling in yeah. books which i think is fascinating and it but it's such a powerful way of reminding you that books of the time you know are really they're, they're organic they are made mm. of bits of wood <laughs> which is why the woodworms tried to eat them the woodworms finding yeah. them tasty and is chewing them all up exactly. um, so yeah um I, I i do like the idea of them kind of just sitting on someone's desk and, and actually rotting or, or being eaten yeah. unless they're unless they're looked after properly so how many book covers did you find okay this is where it also gets interesting because we have definitely 34 what I call corporeal book bindings. So that is something where you have maybe just a fragment of leather, but you have something you can say this was a book once. And then we have a further four uh, what we call ghost bindings. And this is where... A ghost binding? What, 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 what is a ghost binding? <laughs> ghost bindings, yes. A ghost binding is when you have a book that's been laying on top of another book within the chest it was packed in, um, and it's imprinted itself on it. So there was there was one binding, it's just a plain leather, small book binding, and I spent so long looking at these really faint designs on it, and I thought, okay, what am I looking at here? Why is it upside down? It was it was two heads in medallions, and they were clearly not the right way around. So I spent a lot of time thinking, okay, but that's the back cover of the book, how could that work? And ultimately it became clear when we dried the bindings out because they were wet at first. I, I looked at them initially, you know, when they were still wet, they were still um, immersed in water. And uh, when I looked at a dry copy of it and I spoke to bookbindings experts, it suddenly became clear that we weren't looking at, a, 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 you know, a, a, an embossed pattern at all. We were looking at the, the remains, the ghost of another book, which was just so cool. <laughs> it is. So, it's, you know, it's, it, I think it, it's the it, best it, thing I've yeah. ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> When we also found, because books was fastened often with metal clasps in this period, we found kind of an angle, you know, where a metal clasp had got embedded into another book. So there you have this sense, you know, of this luggage chest with these books packed into it, probably not packed that neatly or that, you know, moved in the wreck, you know, and uh, it just gives you, again, that kind of human dimension or that sense of almost capturing a moment in the life of these books, you know, that, that have travelled so far, uh, a lot of them. How, how, the were they dried, how were they dried out? Um, they, okay, so they first of all were um, immersed in a solution called PEG, uh, which is uh, polyethylene glycol. And this basically... That's what they, they've sprayed um, the Mary Rose with. That's <laughs> for, exactly the same for thing, For centuries, yes. I think. That's yeah. it, yes. <laughs> okay. And the books were soaked in that for actually several years, ultimately. And that hydrates them, and that means the leather doesn't become brittle. And then they're freeze-dried, uh, and then you get something which you can handle, which is very stable, you know, which is in a fairly good condition. So that's, that's how they were conserved by the experts. And where, where is the collection now? Uh, it is in... Uh, it's in the possession of the province of North Holland. Ultimately, at least some of the book covers will be put on display at Capskill on Tessel. Uh, but uh, they are, um, they're waiting for the museum to be built at the moment. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, okay. Well, let's let's hope that gets built and we can go, go and see them yeah. soon. How did you actually... So I, I love this idea of... Um, Someone's posturing along as a researcher, minding their own business, and then you get a big collection of things that kind of falls into your lap that you weren't expecting, that no one was expecting, and that there's no kind of pre-existing structure for how to study. So yes. how did you go about studying them? You see, and, and, and it was actually even more panic-inducing than that, because when, <laughs> I, when I began the project, I thought that we were looking at a collection of books belonging to um, someone connected to the Stuart Court in exile, because one of them has a Stuart armorial stamp on it. So it seemed like this might be a royal book or connected to the royal family. Uh, immediately learned this was not the case that the, the book bindings experts that we started talking to basically said, no, this is what we call a trade binding, a book bound for sale in a shop. So that immediately kind of, as it were, you know, destroyed the, the central assumption of our research. So then it just became a case of, of asking questions. And I, I, I think this was where this got really exciting in terms of historical research, was to actually collaborate, to talk to experts on book bindings, to talk to maritime archaeologists and to understand, you know, where these objects might be placed in a, in a context to make sense of them. Um, and people were incredibly generous uh, and, and their expertise was astonishing. And as a result of this, we were able to build up or I was able to build up a set of contexts for these books, for where the book bindings had originated, uh, for the rough date um, that they were created uh, and, and then sort of start to hypothesize as to how they might have ended up all together in a shipwreck. Um, mm. what, were your, what were the hypotheses? What did you what did you think? Well, one question was whether or not it was a collection at all, whether or not this was just a whole set of books, uh, you know, which were, you know, or not or accidentally, but, you know, perhaps hadn't a whole collection of books that belonged to an individual or whether or not there were a collection of books that somebody had collected together and thought, OK, I can I can sell these books are easy to sell, make quick money, um, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll take them home and do that. Um, and we, we still can't say for sure that they belong to a single individual, not least because they're so old and there's such a mix of origins. I mean, Poland, Lithuania, Germany, France, England, 
you know, it, it doesn't, you know, in a sense, doesn't kind of come together to give you a single monolingual owner. So it's someone potentially who could read multiple languages. The more I've looked at them, the more I've thought about them, the more I think actually this is a, a very personal collection of books, um, partly because it's just so random, uh, you know, the things that are here. So come to thinking about, you know, could it have been a, a merchant? Could it have been a traveller of some kind? Maybe uh, a young man going over to Europe to study, travelling of a tutor, picking up books along the way. They're probably not good quality enough for that, so that might not be the case. So we come to maybe ambassadors, diplomats, anyone who had a reason to travel and who might have had a connection in these territories, in these countries these books came from. Yeah. Do we know, I mean... I'm assuming, I might mm. be wrong, that it was expensive to transport something like books. I believe so, yeah. I mean, we're talking at least two chests of books here. There might even be more down there still on the, on the, uh, you know, on the ocean bed. So I think it is somebody with resources to some extent. And if, you know, we go with the hypothesis that they were intended for sale as secondhand books, that really makes it difficult to understand the ones that were in really poor condition, riddled with woodworm and, and so on. So again, that, that gives weight to the idea that it's a, it's a single owner. The other difficult thing about it, or the interesting thing, is that the latest date we can get the book bindings to is around about 1620. Uh, the shipwreck can't have taken place before 1643 or thereabouts. So you've got a 20-year period there where someone apparently hasn't bought any books. I mean, that doesn't happen. We all buy books all the time if you're a book buyer. So did that person die, you know, and, and this is someone's collection being brought home ultimately? Uh, or did, uh, you know, uh, the, other, the other hypothesis, which was a really interesting one, is that because books at the point of sale often aren't bound, or if they are bound, they might be bound in what's called parchment, which is untanned leather, that those books have disappeared altogether. So, you know, the 20 years worth of new books has just yeah. vanished completely. But that's as far as we can take it, really. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we can do a little bit of is is actually attach them to initials. Because two of the books have owner's initials on them. Uh, one is MK, and it has also has a date of 6-4, which is probably 1564. Uh, and that's possibly Polish-Lithuanian in origin. Uh, it's possibly also German uh, or and or German. So that might give us an owner at some point. And the other one is the Stuart Arms Binding. That as that dried out, it became apparent that there was a set of initials on it. And those initials are TG. So if you can find me someone that was in a London bookshop in sometime in the 1610s, 1620s, with the initials TG... Uh, who then went over and travelled on the continent and ended up on a ship coming into Amsterdam in around about the 1640s or onwards, then we could find an owner. <laughs> That's some challenge, but not necessarily <laughs> impossible. Um, I love this idea of, of um, someone moving, basically, or so, mm. maybe someone died and all their goods are going back. So that really kind of brings into into clear focus the fact that this is a period where people were moving around there's a lot going on in the 1640s mm. isn't there um we talk a little bit about you know trade in the 1640s and also the movement of peoples between uh, northern holland and, and yeah. the uk 
Yeah, I mean, I I assumed before I began this project that people wouldn't be travelling around because most of Europe's at war during this period and it seems like an awfully dangerous thing to do. But, you know, uh, that doesn't stop people wanting and needing to make money uh, and to travel for education as well. So well, And to, it, to move end, around. I actually think war's a, war's a real yeah. reason for people to move. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And I and I think there's there's a sense, again, you know, with the number of shipwrecks that we have in this area, that an awful lot of people are coming in and out of Amsterdam um, under quite dangerous conditions, as we don't know whether it's the weather that sank the ship or whether or not it's some kind of aggressive, hostile action that sank it. And either could have happened at this time in this location. So that's very exciting in in a way and, and sort of terrifying in others. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting about this shipwreck is it's called the, um, it's known as the Palmwood Wreck. Uh, and this is because it's got a cargo of palmwood on it. Now, this is not definitive, but it seems possible that this means it was coming from the Mediterranean, uh, that it's got a cargo from the Ottoman Empire, say, coming in. Some of the textiles are, appear to originate from the Ottoman Empire. There's a, there's a flat cut man's coat, uh, which is Ottoman style. There's also, uh, fragments, tiny fragments now of wool carpets with designs on them that appear to originate in Persia. So, you know, it's it's a real mix of stuff and it does indicate possibly, you know, if there is a connection between the textiles and the book covers, which I'm inclined to think there probably is because they're all packed in chests together in the same part of the ship. But, you know, which we can't be definitive about until we know more and unless we know more. But it seems like it could be someone, you know, who's been an ambassador out in the east and is coming home or, you know, or a merchant, you know, that's picked up bits and pieces along the way and is bringing them home. It's really hard to be sure but it does give you that glimpse I suppose of you know this kind of world in which the goods that are produced in the Mediterranean these these luxury items uh, you know they have a big market that wants to acquire them so they're being shipped around the place uh, either as cargo or as someone's personal possessions you know that they've bought along the way or accumulated uh, it's and it, you know it's it's such a, a frustrating thing in some ways we we would love to think that we could find you know an insurance claim for this rather expensive cargo uh, and colleagues you know researchers have been looking but so far to no avail um we we really need hmm. um we we need the name of the ship that's what we need yeah one explanation of course is it might be some some kind of ambassador in the east like you said from holland who's been out there hmm. um for uh, for 10 or 15 years which is why he hasn't bought any new books and then it is coming home yeah. is coming yeah. home after his stint after his stint is done or i'd also like to think it was a um it was a merchant ship's captain's personal library or the ship's library there you go it's a ship's library for for <laughs> merchants sailing for people sailing around all over the world give them something to read <laughs> i like that very much I was just going to say, I love the fact, actually, in a way, I mean, as a historian, I'd like to know who it belongs to. But uh, as a, a sort of history fan, I quite like the idea that you can tell multiple stories from these books, that there isn't just sort of here's someone's books and that was what was in them. There, That's where they came from. It actually opens up the possibilities. And I think that's the excitement for me. Well, I completely agree with you. I, a history is a much more creative discipline than many people give it credit for. And it's in the holes like this that uh, I think history is the most exciting and it's the most challenging. There is no definitive answer, but that doesn't stop us asking questions of the past, which is, um, it, I completely agree with you. Well done. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> it's such a wonderful story of these books coming up from this wreck. Are there any other examples like this that, any, that people have discovered? 
no and and that was really exciting as well so i i i looked around i asked around um the vasa uh nice comparable shipwreck sunk in 1628 only four books on board um, the mary rose uh, sunk in 1545 nine books but spread out across the ship so they're they're there's sort of six of them were found within five lockable chests so you know there that it's probably someone's private prayer book or or something you know a, a single book belonging to a single person this collection there's nothing like it there's there's the sterling castle sank in 1701 six books found so far um and the london sunk in the thames estuary some really exciting stuff coming up from there sunk in 1665 uh few books coming up from that but again only in single numbers and spread out across the wreck so nothing like this as an underwater collection exists and it's also pretty difficult to find dry collections as it were you know above ground above water collections because these aren't the kinds of books that you keep in a fancy library again that idea that these are working books or someone's personal collection uh, that they're pretty scruffy in some cases that you know there's a few new editions but you know nothing too fancy uh, that strikes me as being pretty unique and if, if someone else knows of anything comparable I'd love them to get in touch. Yeah, it makes you think about the nature of collections because someone might be listening going, oh, well, of course, there are 17th century books in the, in the British Library or wherever. You know, there are 17th century books in libraries all over the UK uh, and elsewhere. But the point is that they may not, they might have just come as an individual donation. They, they, they're not part necessarily part of a collection. And it's, it's the collecting nature of it that makes it so, so fascinating. Yeah, exactly so. And and actually, the other very thrilling thing that came up, came up in research was being able to match some of these books to some of these single books sort of dotted across collections. So with the Stuart Arms stamp, um, I was able to match that with a book in the Royal Collection at Windsor and a book at Cambridge University Library. Nothing similar in terms of their contents. One's a travel book about Venice. One's a rebound copy of an old Bible, you know, but the same armorial stamp was used and we can be absolutely sure about it because there's a mistake with the stamp. Um, mm. it, the, the stamp has the garter motto and, uh, you know, qui mal and on the pants, the, the N is the wrong way round. So we have this brass stamp that a binder was using, which has the end the wrong way round, and he stamped these three books. And now we can reunite them and say at some point they passed through the same binder studio. Um, and we have the exact same thing with a book uh, in uh, an archival library in Munich, which again it has slight flaws in the the decoration that was used. It's a crucifixion scene and a and um, a Christ rising from the grave, uh, and uh, and we can match that exactly as well with the one small alteration, which is that the tessel example is one millimeter smaller because it shrunk whilst being under the sea. <laughs> okay. <you. laughs> okay, but it does make you realise that um, you know to make sense of these these wonderful discoveries that you've got to tap into the work of so many different scholars. You realise of the the importance of the network of scholarship. So you've got people who know about book bindings, people who know about clasps on book bindings, people who know about stamps, and you've got the archaeology side of things, the collecting side of things, the library side of things, and um, it does make you see how how you know scholarship really kind of fits in and, and that's so creative and, and dynamic working with other people in different fields and you suddenly get something unusual which which combines everyone's knowledge that's why I like it I think it's brilliant yeah. well done <laughs> yeah and I love it too and I I am so grateful to all those people that talk to me as well you know this has to be the way forward that we talk to each other we share these amazing discoveries and we learn
Yeah. Well, it's wonderful. And um, I hope that we'll be able to read about it or find out more about this in the future. Soon, soon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. well, we'll come back to you as soon as you're ready to share. Thanks, Janet, so much for speaking to me. Thanks, Sam. Well, thanks so much for listening. Please do make sure that you find the Society for Nautical Research online at snr.org.uk, which is where you will find images of these wonderful books and also all over social media, the Society for Nautical Research on Twitter and Facebook and the Mariner's Mirror podcast on Instagram and YouTube. Particularly, the YouTube channel is rapidly becoming a fabulous repository of some really innovative ways of presenting the maritime past. Please share, share, share the these episodes share the podcast tell everyone you know about this it really really helps and please leave us a review on itunes if you can you can also get in touch with ideas i've set up a strand on the society for nautical research's free forum for idea proposals for the mariner's mirror podcast but best of all please put your hand in your pocket and join the snr your annual subscription it's not very much money will nevertheless support this podcast and also help us publish the most important maritime history and preserve our maritime past When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.